0: The Old Testament book of Proverbs is a, is a handbook of, on, the, on the subject of wisdom and filled with insights for those who would long to understand God's wisdom. What is it that God says is required for living wisely before man and God study? Proverbs. The opposite is equally true that if you neglect Proverbs, you are destined to experience foolishness. One of the most practical and necessary applications of wisdom that's in Proverbs is about leadership, about roles of leadership and the need to apply godly wisdom to leaders. Those charged with leading need God's wisdom. Proverbs 8, verse 15 and 16, this is wisdom speaking. Wisdom says, by me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. You see that? Wisdom saying that, that those who govern well, those who rule well, kings and princes, and those who are in authority who lead well, those who lead well do so by the wisdom of God. Proverbs twenty eight sixteen gives the opposite. says that a ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor, a foolish leader, can bring destruction upon his people. Proverbs 29, 3, just to wrap up from Proverbs on this for a second. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. The key word there is righteous. Those who are righteous, those who meditate on God's wisdom in order to understand what is right and wrong as God defines right and wrong. A good leader needs God's wisdom to be righteous. And the Bible's filled with instructions about leadership, filled with examples of leadership, some good, many that are bad. Our God is a God of order. He established leadership. He sets order. He establishes leaders in the home, in the church, in civil society, in all of these places. Our God of order establishes those who are to lead and to lead with wisdom, to lead in righteousness, to obey God's standards of right and wrong. The Old Testament, as we've been seeing over the last couple of Sundays, is in some sense a quest for A godly leader. One of the the, the resounding themes that we see again and again is this desire for, this longing for leadership that is righteous, one who does God's will, who obeys God's will. If you go back to the very beginning, and and Genesis, when when Adam and Eve are given the, the, the command from God in Genesis chapter one, they are told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Already, right at creation, there is this establishment of order. And God says that the two creatures of all that is on the earth at this point who are made in my image, the man and the woman, they are to rule. They are to have dominion over the rest of creation. We know the story. Adam and Eve failed. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden. But the mandate remains. The mandate to still... Uh, for, for man to have dominion over the earth remains, only now it's marred by sin, marred by selfish desires and by lazy efforts and by poor stewardship. And yet through it all, there is still this hope for a righteous leader. There's still this desire. We saw it in the seed of the, the woman, that there would be one coming who would bruise the head of the serpent. We've seen this now promise given to Abraham and then to Jacob and then to Jacob's son, Judah, as, as we saw last week in Genesis 49, when Jacob is explaining to Judah that the scepter will remain in your hands, the, the, the staff. There's one coming from that line of Judah who will reign, who will be this, this good king. That rule though wasn't gonna happen anytime soon. When Jacob is speaking to his sons gathered around him in the family, there's it's probably about 70 people at this time. It's a far cry from the, 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 the nation that would be as, as great as the sand on the, on the seashore that, that would multiply and, and, and increase. He's speaking to a small group and due to a massive famine that's going on, Jacob's family is forced to leave the very land that God had sent them to and to go down to Egypt where God has in his providence already sent ahead one of Jacob's sons who is providing there for both sustaining the people of Egypt, but also for Jacob's family. Jacob's family goes down to Egypt. They are sheep herders down in Egypt, which it turns out is... A job of disrepute as far as the Egyptians are concerned. They look down on shepherds. It actually works to the favor of God's line in the sense that there is no intermarriage that we see going on with the Egyptians because for the most part the Israelites are looked down upon. But they do continue to flourish. They grow. They multiply. And over time Joseph has passed from the scene. Jacob's descendants now are very numerous. They are growing large and a new king over Egypt begins to reign and feels threatened by these people. He, he, he comments that there are too many of them, essentially. If an enemy comes up against us and they side with the enemy, then we are doomed. And so you know the story, the king of Egypt makes slaves of the Israelites, orders the midwives to, to put to death any baby boys who are born to the Hebrew people. Not only does Israel not have a ruler, they don't have a land and they are enslaved. They are now for generations put in a a situation where they are suffering and they are in slavery. Once again, the seed of God's promise seems in great jeopardy. Now, we know how that story ends. God does something so profoundly miraculous that his prophets will point back to it for generations and generations to come. The way God delivers his people from out of slavery in Egypt becomes the story that is recited again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. When the people are in despair, when they are in captivity, when they are facing God's punishment, over and over again, what do the prophets speak? This is the God who delivered you from Egypt. This is the God who rescued you before. This is the God who will deliver again. That final plague that God used through Moses to bring them out of Egypt becomes the cornerstone for an annual feast. And is the Passover, a recognition of God saving his people through a sacrificed lamb. It echoes back again to Genesis 3:15. The serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. The serpent will continue to painfully attack, and yet God will sovereignly keep his promises. The serpent will try to thwart them over and over again, but God ultimately bruises the serpent's head and provides the means of salvation. The storyline of God's provision of his people, God fulfilling his promises, continues. You move on through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. God is moving them toward the land, and he's dwelling among them. If you recall, God has them establish this tabernacle, this kind of traveling temple that they can take with them and set up in a new location, and and there is God's presence amongst them. And so throughout these books in the Pentateuch, one of the things we're seeing is God establishing his law. God saying, as you are going to be those who come near to me, as we are going to commune together, you are going to understand and obey my law. And there will also be feasts and ceremonies that are for atonement and for cleansing so that the people can now be near and fellowship with their God. All of it, having God in their presence and having these feasts, is all this a reminder, if you will, of their sin. It is a reminder of the, the, the glaring reality of the fact that they worship a holy God and yet they are a sinful people and they are in need of atonement and cleansing. The book of Numbers records yet another attempt, another another attempt by the serpent to strike at God's promises the Israelites still are not settled in the promised land. They're, they're camped on the, the plain of Moab and they are outside of Moab and the ruler of Moab calls on a Gentile named Balaam. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were looking at the history of Israel and says to Balaam, lay a curse on them. Speak a curse over these, these people who have come up out of Egypt. And you know what happens. What happens? Balaam not only is unable to pronounce a curse, but by the sovereign work of God, he declares blessing over Israel. Does exactly the opposite of what the ruler of Moab wants. In the first oracle, one of the first things Balaam says is, who can count the dust of Israel? He's essentially echoing exactly what God had promised back in Genesis 13 when God said to Abraham, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, then your offspring can be counted too. It's impossible. And here is Balaam, this Gentile, acknowledging that already they are, they are like the dust. They are so numerous. In his second oracle, Balaam says of Israel, the Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. The irony of this is they are essentially a nomadic group of tribes, of families that are camped, that, that don't have land yet, don't really have a nation yet, certainly don't have a king. And there is this, this Gentile who is pronouncing blessing over them. And he's saying that the Lord is with them and the shout of a king is among them. It's kind of hard to believe, hard to picture at that moment in time. In the third oracle, Balaam says of Israel, his king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. Again, there's this emphasis on there is a king coming from this nation, not just any king. This will be a great king that will be greater than all the other kings. And in that third oracle, he describes a land that has palm groves and gardens and aloes and cedar trees lining the water. It's a beautiful place. It really begins to speak of a, Restored paradise, a place in which God and his people have fellowship. And that last oracle, all of these supposed to be attempts to strike the serpent striking, Balaam actually again calls Yahweh the most high and the almighty. And he says this in Numbers 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. And break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemy, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. It's a remarkable thing when you consider it is the king of Moab who is paying Balaam to pronounce curse, and it is Balaam who is now saying, No, on the contrary, there is one coming. He's not here yet, but there is a ruler coming that will give their God all of the victory. This king will be, will, will be over all. He will be the one who rules over all. And, and Israel at that point, they don't have the land yet. They're still facing enemies. You read the, the stories surrounding this. They're still struggling with sin. They're still being tempted with idolatry. They're still a weak people. And yet in the midst of that, God not only kindly recalls that I have promised you royalty, But he foretold a conquering king who would exercise dominion over the nations of the world. You see the thread? This this coming, this expectation of a coming ruler is growing. It's not just the seed of the woman. It's not just the king. It is now an expectation of a ruler, a great ruler with matchless strength, a righteous ruler. For the Israelites in in those days of wandering in the wilderness and waiting to enter into the promised land, that expectation of a king was not, not yet fully messianic as we would understand it in terms of the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah. At that point, it is largely a picture of a strong king who gives us peace, who provides for us security, who comes and leads us and gives us victory. God helps them to think about this king in Deuteronomy 17 and his giving of the law he says, Here is, Here's the kind of king that you're going to have. And in Deuteronomy 17, he says, When you enter the land, then you will be able to have a king, but it will be a king that I choose. It will be a king from among your people, it will not be a, a foreigner. And it should not be a king who is committed to to pleasing himself. His his ambition in life should not be about acquiring stuff. He should not be one who is distracted by the cares of the world. Rather, in Deuteronomy 17, he says what that king needs to do as he takes the throne is, is have the priests write him out a copy of the law. And then he says this, and it shall be with him. That copy of God's law shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God is preparing Israel for a king, but one who is radically different than all the kings that they knew in the world at that point. Those kings were about ruling themselves, deciding what was best for their nation and, and doing what, whatever pleased them and served them. And God says, you may have a king, but this king will serve me. This king will exalt me. This king will always be under my rule. He must be submitted to me. And that's why this king must know and obey my law. All that he does must be driven by his fear of me and his obedience to me. One of the chief ways that Israel's king was to be different than all of the other kings is he was to lead his people in worship of Yahweh. He was to set an example for them. God's design for Israel is for a righteous leader. And, and, and he warns that if he turns from that to the right or to the left, he will lose his rule. What a profound lesson for you and I, who, with all of our responsibilities in life, nowhere near approach the responsibilities of a king. You and I, as, as hard as our jobs get, as hard as your day gets, with, with all of the things that are on your plate, at, at work and at home and, and all of the, the things that you face, I, I, I think most of us will agree that we don't have all of the accountability of a king in caring for a nation. A- and yet, there's that same sense of desire of, I, I want to be successful. I want to do my, my job well. And We, we scour the-, the internet for wisdom and instructions to succeed. And here is God saying, king, there is one thing I want you to do above all else. It- 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 policy, yeah, you-, you can do that. And seeking counsel and getting wisdom and decision-making, all valuable. But you must preeminently read my word. You must immerse yourself in the knowledge of who I am. You must fear me above all else. That is the thing that ultimately is going to give you wisdom and blessing if you bow to me. That is the priority. Moses was was a leader for a time throughout this, but certainly not completely that kind of leader. He didn't enter the promised land on account of his sin. Uh, in fact, it is Moses who is kept out of the promised land when the people enter for the very reason that he has disobeyed, that he has, um, in, in an angry moment, he has, in an outburst, sinned in such a way that God keeps him from out of the land of promise. But the people entered. And, and the, the beauty is the people entering the land and taking the land without Moses, without a king, ultimately gives all the glory to who? It's God. There wasn't some great figurehead who who strategically worked it all out so that they got into this land and who could be credited with all of the victories. It was God who brought them into this land. He works through Joshua to some measure, but it is indeed completely God who is the king to whom all owe allegiance. And that's why even Joshua, at the end of his life, gives a charge to the people when they are settled in this land, choose whom you're going to serve. You can either serve the God who just brought us here, or you can serve the gods of the lands around us. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He understands ultimately who, who deserves all of the credit and who brought them into the land. And so the Jewish people enter the land. They're charged by God now to be obedient, to, to dwell in the land in obedience and to be blessed. And you come to the end of Joshua, and you're, you're left at this point with two questions Will they do it? Will they obey? And then the second question is, what about the ruler? What happens next? Joshua is about to disappear from the scene. He's about to pass. So what's going to happen with this ruler? And the book of Judges comes along and answers both of those questions in the negative. They will not obey, and there is not a ruler. Things continue to devolve. Uh, The book of Judges describes these series of leaders called judges, all of whom, demonstrate acts of faith who are used by God in various situations to protect the people from the enemies, but none of whom have any great influence over the nation. And what we see in Judges is the nation just continues to descend into idolatry and evil. And so in the last five chapters of Judges, there's this recurring theme that summarizes not only the book, but the state of Israel at this time, four four times the writer of Judges says, in those days, there was no king In Israel and twice he follows that up by saying in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes and so we're now seeing the the promise of a king now become a very deeply spiritual issue in that God is saying there must be one who will lead with righteousness there must be one who will lead by example There must be one who will show to them and urge them my ways, to obey me, to follow after Yahweh, to make that the priority. And that's ultimately how the book of Judges ends. Let me just pause here and give you an encouragement as we're, we're spanning through about a thousand years of time and you're wondering how far will this go in terms of the Old Testament. I am, my hope, one of my hopes in this series of messages is that when January comes and you, you restart your Bible reading plan and you start plugging away in Genesis and then you eventually get to Leviticus and you're kind of struggling along. I, one of the things I hope is that you'll think back on some of the things we've looked at these last few weeks and you will you will be captured by this incredible, beautiful, consistent storyline that is moving through each of these books that that goes back to Genesis 3 and that promise of the offspring of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent even as he strikes at the heel of the offspring and and seeing that storyline develop from that promise of offspring to that promise of a king to that promise of a righteous king who rules and has dominion. It continues to develop and to develop, and and ultimately now we're seeing the need for a strong king who follows all of God's ways. It's all all moving in this direction, and that movement continues on into the book of Ruth. Ruth is kind of the bridge. No kings and judges. We get to the books of Samuel, and there's the inauguration of a king. Ruth's the book in between. Still the days of the judges, but, but one of these fascinating books that sort of starts in a place that we think, where, where are we going again? Where is, the, where is the promise being fulfilled here? We've got this uh, Jewish man and his wife and their two sons who are dealing with famine and decide to go, of all places, to Moab. We will leave the country and we will go to Moab and hopefully we will find food there. And, and, and in a remarkable providence of God, he provides for them there. The two sons marry Moabite women and as you know the story, over time, both the husband the, the, the leader of the family, the father, and then the two husbands, his two sons die. And so now we're left with three widows, the elderly Jewish widow and two Moabite women, who are widows. When Ruth's mother-in-law decides to return back to the land of Israel, Ruth goes with her. And there, she is redeemed by a man who is from the family line, who just happens, to be from the line of Judah. Remember Judah from last week and the promise of the scepter in Judah? And here is Boaz from the line of Judah who takes Ruth to be his wife, and together they have a son. And we get to the end of the book of Ruth, and there's this interesting little genealogy that Ruth and Boaz had a son, and his name was Obed, okay? Obed had a son, and his name was Jesse. And then Jesse had a son, and his name was what? David. Wow, this that started with a family leaving the the promised land and going off to Moab, now returns back to Israel. And it is the kind of miraculous reversal that should demonstrate to us and remind us of God's sovereign grace, that God would take a circumstance, a people, situations that so often seem the opposite of what he would desire, And that God would work good from out of that. That God in his grace would bring to bear his will. A woman from a nation that is a stumbling block to Israel. Moab was really a a nation of temptation for Israel and, and, and luring them into sin. It becomes a nation that actually her grandson David has to lead his army against Moab. A woman from Moab, now of all things, when we get to the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we find the name Ruth. It's just a remarkable story of his providence and grace and what God does in circumstances that seem otherwise completely opposite of what we'd expect. It takes us to the books of Samuel. I'm not going through the whole Old Testament this morning, just in case you're wondering. Really, here's where I want to land mostly is the books of Samuel. It's bookended by two songs, one at the beginning of 1 Samuel, one at the end of 2 Samuel. The 1 Samuel is Hannah. Who, who is giving a song of praise to God, and it will bookend with David at the end of 2 Samuel in chapters 22 and 23. But starts with Hannah. Hannah's a barren woman at a time when that is a, a, a blight on her. She is grieving the fact that she cannot have a son. She is being mocked in chapter one for being childless. In a way, her situation is not all that different from Israel right at that time. They, they are a weak people in need of a leader. They, they, they feel like they have nothing going for them in terms of the other nations around them. God answered Hannah's prayer. She gives birth to a son, and his name is Samuel. And her song of praise that takes up the first half of 1 Samuel chapter two is really this Declaration of vindication, and it is God who has vindicated her. And so she declares in that song that God is a mighty and just Savior. There's none like him. He weighs the actions of men. He breaks those who are arrogant. God gives strength to the feeble. He helps the poor. Hannah is exalting Yahweh. And look at what she says. This is First Samuel 2, verse 9. Speaking of Yahweh, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall, he, shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah, there's no king. There is no king over Israel. And yet, God graciously is foretelling through Hannah's words that there is one coming. And God will give strength to this king and this king will be exalted. This anointed one of God will be exalted and this will be a righteous ruler who will exercise justice and who will crush God's enemies. It's about a thousand years right now from when the promise came to Abraham that you will have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and you will have kings from out of your line to where we are at this point And Israel is in the land. The nation is not fully committed to obeying God. Even the priests are doing evil. We find that out early in 1 Samuel, that that Samuel's sons are, 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 are not to be trusted. They are evil men. The Philistines are still presenting a threat. And Samuel is... Is acting as a judge, really, during this time, kind of one in the succession of judges. And he's a good leader, but the nation's still largely unrighteous. By 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel is old, and and in his wisdom decides to appoint his sons to lead. His sons served themselves and took bribes and perverted justice. And so look at 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. It's a monumental moment in Israel's history. Because on the one hand, having just seen this in Judges, we understand there is the need for a king. There is the need for someone who would lead them in righteousness and that's been the one that's been promised all along. That's been the one that was mandated in Deuteronomy 17 in the law, a king who would observe the law and who would lead them. So we we understand that there's this need and yet we know that in this moment, it stirs up Samuel's displeasure when they come to him and say, give us a king to judge us like the, the neighbors and Samuel prays to God and here's how God answers him. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. For as much as they needed a king to lead them, the realization is that what's going on in the hearts of the elders at this point is, it's not Samuel, give us a king who will lead us to obey God that will cause us to do Yahweh's will. It was Samuel, we've looked around, all the other nations seem to be doing just fine with a king, we want one of them. We want somebody that protects us, that prospers us, that does the things that we want a king to do. And they have completely missed the point and so instead of bowing to Yahweh's rule, give us a king who will turn us to him, it's just give us a king who will do what we need a king to do. Which explains how Israel gets to the place that when their first king comes along, one of the, one of the significant points of of deciding that this is a good king is his appearance. Now, that's, that's really when Scripture, 1 Samuel nine, it, it, it says that there was a man of wealth from the tribe of Benjamin. Verse two says, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. God is sovereign over the choice of Israel's first king. There's no question about that, but it is clear what the Israelites saw in Saul. This guy looks good. You know, you ever watch those those news stories and when all the the leaders of the nations are, they're all standing there for kind of the photo opportunity and you can't help but notice like the short guy in the group and then the tall guy in the group. And and you know, our minds sort of do that. That one, he looks, looks like a leader, looks strong. Another one looks kind of short and dumpy. You know, whose whose country is that one a leader of? Not impressive. And that's what the Israelites are doing. They're looking and they're going, we're going to thrive under this guy. He's best looking king around. We're going to be just fine. The problem is their objectives to prosper and be protected can ultimately only be met by who? Yahweh. It's the Lord who prospers them. It's the Lord who protects them. The king's job really is to lead them in submission to Yahweh because when they are in submission to Yahweh, Yahweh will protect them and provide for them. But they've got it all backwards and they rejected King Yahweh in favor of the one who looks good and Saul's rule was never one of great obedience to the Lord. It's constantly marked by failure. It's marked by blame shifting. One of the great distinctives you see between Saul and David, both are sinners, But Saul, when he gets caught in situations, typically is offering an excuse. He's blaming someone. It's it's somebody's fault for not showing up on time. It's, It's some other reason. David, when he's ultimately finally confronted by Nathan, says, against you, Lord, have I sinned? You alone, Psalm 53. Saul shows no evidence of that. And so by the time you get to chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, God has rejected Saul. In chapter 16, he is appointing David. And the rest of 1 Samuel is this this ongoing tussle over who will be king. God has already taken Saul out, and yet Saul is trying desperately to cling to rule, and so he is fighting David. He's trying everything he can to get rid of David so that his own son Jonathan would be the future king. Jonathan, who actually in turn supports David, David, the youngest son of Jesse, is made king despite multiple attempts by Saul to kill him. Saul, as he's clinging to power, does at some point, at least momentarily, recognize the truth. 1 Samuel uh, 24, verse 17, Saul says to David in another one of those instances when David could have killed him and didn't. He says, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. There's Saul even acknowledging that David is righteous and I am evil. And Saul spoke God's truth, whether he wanted to or not. He goes on and says in verse 20, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Didn't stop Saul from continuing to fight and cling and try all of the unrighteous means he could to hold on. But David is chosen. Not for his appearance. David is the youngest of sons of Jesse. In fact, when When Samuel is sent to uh, the family of Jesse, Samuel's given specific instructions. It's not about appearance. I'm not looking at appearance. I'm looking at what? The heart. I want to see if this is a man who is devoted to me and who will obey me. David did not use unrighteousness to gain the throne. In the opportunities that he had in which he could have killed Saul, David rather trusts Yahweh, one writer put it this way, David received the reward of the kingdom because he refused to seize it. I I say to you, brothers and sisters, that is a relevant lesson for you and I that that Peter speaks in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, when he says to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Uh, What what David, by God's grace, models for us is the willingness to say, I'm going to trust you, Lord. I am not going to resort to some other means, to some other trickery, to to something that would defy you in order to try to get what I think still would be the right thing in the end. I'm going to trust you in this. In 2 Samuel 7, God sends Nathan to now King David. He's on the throne. David is settled the nation is well. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, Nathan comes and says to David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. A remarkable statement. Similar to what he had said to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. God had promised to Abraham that that he would bring greatness to him, that he would bless the earth through the seed of Abraham and David now inherits that promise. God made David great. The critical thing to remember is this, this falls in a, in a chapter that begins with David's desire to build a temple for God. There's, David's in a palace, but they're still having a tabernacle for God, still sort of this temporary moving place that, that, that God meets with the people at. And, and so David's desire is to build a temple, to replace the tabernacle with a dwelling place worthy of God. But you see what Yahweh doing here. He's saying, David, this is not about what you can do for me. Your your story will not finish with people saying, oh, David with his army defeated all of these enemies. David with his, his might and wisdom built this great temple. David did all of these wonderful things and that's why God brings him up short and says, remember when you were in the pasture following the sheep? I made you prince. Remember all the defeats of the enemies? I did that. I accomplished that work. I am making for you a great name. That the storyline is God's. It's what God is doing for David, not what David is going to try to do for God. And it culminates ultimately with this promise in 2 Samuel 7:16. God says, "In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." There's the promise. We call it the Davidic covenant. We started with the promise of a seed of the woman. We've seen that it's a a king. We've seen that it should be a righteous king. And now it's pointing to an eternal king, an eternal throne. David was not the ultimate fulfillment by any stretch of this promise of God. David was a man after God's own heart, but David sinned grievously in his taking of Bathsheba, in his directing the, the, the murder of her husband, Even even at the very end of his life, after all that he has learned and all that God has done, see if you you feel like David in some sense when you continue to repeat things and do things and you think, why do I keep... Here's David at the very end of his life. Let me do a census. Let me see just how great my nation really is. Just kind of a trophy to, to all that I've done. And he incites God's anger one more time before the end of his life. But just as the books of Samuel began with... Hannah, and her praise to God for his strength and how he vindicates his people and vindicates the humble, so it ends with David's last words. In 2 Samuel 23, verse three, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David's learned God desires a just, good ruler who fears him. But he's also knowing that there is one coming who is perfect in righteousness. And when that righteous king comes, he will dawn like morning light. He will shine on his people like the sun. He will refresh them like rain on dry ground. David is describing God's promise all along of a righteous servant king who would come and who would lead and rule over his people. What a glorious climax to a millennium from God's promise to Abraham to his promise of an eternal throne to David. We want to at 2 Samuel 7, we want to say, boom, the end, and it all went well. But we also know that it didn't go so well after this. It's just two generations after David that the nation falls apart. The nation becomes divided, Israel, Judah. It's only about 300 years later that Israel has has gone off into complete rebellion. They have abandoned God, they have abandoned Jerusalem, they've set up their own worship, they are worshiping idols, they are disobeying God, and they are carried off into judgment by the Assyrian army to be scattered. Some Jews will come back and be able to live in that area, but for the most part, the northern kingdom is never the same again. In the south, about 20 kings descend after David. You know how it goes. Some are good, most are terrible. And the nation continues to devolve and Judah with Jerusalem at its heart goes further and further away from God and the throne of David ends with King Zedekiah whose last sight on the earth was to watch his family slaughtered in front of him before his eyes are gouged out and he is put in chains and dragged into captivity where he dies in Babylon." and so we've gone from the hope of second samuel of this eternal throne to a king who is dragged away in chains in the end god did restore jerusalem but but there were no more kings the jews attempted self-rule in, in different ways, but for the most part, for the, the rest of their history after that, they are pawns under the rule of other governments. For 400 years, there is no record even of God's prophets saying, thus says the Lord, the nation of God's choosing is largely lost in, in darkness and obscurity. And the promises of a king seem to be pretty much a memory at this point. And then Matthew one begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Sometimes when we're dealing with the Christmas story, Matthew 1 doesn't get a lot of attention. It's a bunch of names. It's another one of those genealogies. But it's that same genealogy that, that, that shows us Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Ruth, Jesse, David. And then all of the ancestors from in between David up until the time that Matthew says to us comes Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. The Genesis promise of a line descending from Judah, of a king from Judah who would hold on to the scepter forever and who deserved it. The oracles of Gentile Balaam, the commands about a king in Deuteronomy 17, even the failures of the judges and all of the kings all points to one unmistakable, unshakable, unchanging reality that God is keeping his word, that the promise that God has given, he is now fulfilling and there is coming a truly righteous, truly just king who fulfills God's law, who obeys God's law, who walks in all of God's ways. And that king must be sent from God himself. And when he is, he's born of a virgin, born in obscurity. And he comes to bring light and life. And even when he does, the most people around him reject him. They despise him, and he is crucified. Jesus is that king. And, and, and friends, here's the takeaway from this morning's history lesson. God orchestrated millennia of history to fulfill his promises and to accomplish his will. Through chaos and through rebellion and through darkness and through all of these circumstances when it all should have just went awry, the sovereign creator was working to do all things after the counsel of his will as Ephesians 1:11 says. So that his eternal plan to bring glory to himself by saving a people for himself would be accomplished. In Jesus I don't know what circumstance you're facing this morning. It may be a glorious time, and your holiday season is going perfectly, and you've got your shopping done and you're on top of the world. Anybody? <laughs> your circumstances may be horrible this morning, and you may be more discouraged than you feel like you've ever been in despair. And, and, and the reason that we did what we did this morning is to say to you. If you, will, if you will trust the rule of the only good God, of the, the one who is king and who rules over all, if you will trust in his servant king, Jesus Christ, if you will trust him above all else, then I can I can't assure you your circumstances change. I can't tell you that all of that gets fixed. I can tell you that this God who from Genesis to Matthew 1 has brought all of this to bear to bring about Jesus, he will work in your life because he has promised that he works all things together for good for them that love him and are called according to his purpose. He desires that you trust him and he wants to be to you the sunlight in the morning and the refreshing of your soul like rain on dry ground. Let me finish with familiar words. do this. When God promises, when God assures, when God says, rest in me and trust in me, you can trust him. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish all that he has purposed. Let's pray. Father, that we would this morning come before you as a people even more humbled by your grace and your majesty, that we would see in your son our our saving and deliverance, that we would, like David today, hear you saying, I am the one who has rescued you. I am the one who has taken you from the pasture and who has given you life. I am the one who has given you the hope of eternity in my presence, who has forgiven your sins. That we, this morning, would would see Jesus even greater and more magnificent in ruling over all of our lives and even over our circumstances and that you are at work in them to accomplish your purposes. Help us, Lord, to to bow before you in this way and to acknowledge that rule humbly and to be grateful for it, that that the sovereign one who created it all and carried out his purpose through millennia of what what seemed like chaos and darkness and loss and constant threats to the line, for you was was never that. It was all your, your perfect plan being worked out through the frailties and sinfulness of man to accomplish your purposes so that in the end, we would stand as David and say, this is all of you, God. This is your work. Thank you for that. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who by his death and resurrection has accomplished for us what those feasts and the law only pointed to, and that was that need for full atonement, full washing and cleansing of our sins, done in Jesus on the cross, proven in Jesus resurrected. Lord Jesus, we love you, we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate your incarnation and to Give thanks for all that you accomplished when you humbly emptied yourself and came to the earth, and we give you thanks that you are coming again as our sovereign king. It's in your name we pray, amen.